Um, Travis, is it Sartin or Sartain? Sartin. Sartin. Okay, because Jason said it last week, Sartin. I'm like, this whole time I thought it was Sartain. That's, that's me mispronouncing Well, it. I only have half my family that says Sartain. Do, so. the, do they actually? Yeah. Okay. Is there like an internal dispute inside the family of the right pronunciation? Or well, what? even with my own brother. It really? So he says Sartain? Yeah. What is the origin of it? So like, it, uh, well, as, as I've done, um, and you know, the, what is it? Ancestry.com yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, we always thought that my dad's side was, um, we always thought kind of slighted more French Okay. and my mother's side was heavy German. And then as we take a look at the DNA results mm-hmm. and how it maps out, um, heavy English with a minor of, uh, of Irish in us, and then, and then pretty significant uh, Germanic. Oh, and is that the origin of the, the, the surname? Uh, it, 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 it really stems uh, uh, some uh, French immigrants. Okay. Um, but it must have been way, way long ago. But the derivative is, uh, is certain. Okay. Right, so cert- being certain. Really? Yeah. C-E-R-T-A-I-N. Okay. So then what do you guys do when you're, are you, do you guys have arguments over how to pronounce, no. pronounce it? Or it's just like, okay, you say what you want to say, I'll say what I I'll just say. go, I go, are <laughs> we really from the same mother and father? Yeah. And we yeah. really grew up, you know, our entire lives. And I continue to say it's Sartan and he goes, that's nah, Sartan. Well, that's like, what is it? You remember the, the movie Joe Dirt back in the yes. day where it's like, don't, Dirt, dear Tay, don't throw an E on in, try to church it up. That's what, <laughs> that's what it sounds like you guys are doing. Nathan, I figured we're rolling, right? Yeah, we're good, man. I just wanted to get that out of the way. We'll, we'll, maybe we'll keep that. <laughs> Yeah, Keep that's... that part of the conversation. But I'm with Travis Sarton. I'll, I'll, I'll use your pronunciation. Uh, SVP of sales with Marshall McLennan. How you doing, man? I'm very well. I, and actually, I can deliver a little bit of news. I actually, as of January 1, have been promoted to uh, executive vice president. Boom, give me one of these. Uh, th- uh, maybe I pulled the old LinkedIn or maybe I didn't pay attention. But it hasn't been announced yet. Oh. So this is... Oh, uh, this is the public reveal. This is the dude. public reveal. Okay, well, congratulations, dude. That's, uh, oh, thank you. that's awesome. And I'm sure it's a testament to your 22 plus years of, of service to MMA. And uh, I, I'm, I'm happy for you, man. That's really cool. Thanks for uh, revealing that on the show. But today we're going to cover the broker perspective again, Travis. I was telling you... Probably every six to eight weeks or so, I like to have the consultant voice back on the show because I go out there, I talk to solution providers, I talk to TPAs, carriers, et cetera, et cetera. You get that side of the equation very often. We don't always get the broker side, which is you guys' responsibility is to navigate the benefits world and figure out what's what's real, what's not, what to do for your clients, et cetera. So I appreciate you coming on and, and lending your expertise, sir. Well, first off, thank you, Spencer, for having me. And as we were talking about earlier, you are my first as it relates to podcasts. I, well, it, I've been a lot of people's first. So I don't know if that's a good <laughs> or a bad thing. I'm the entry point for people after this. You're going to be going on uh, you know, a run of podcast appearances after this, I bet. We'll see about that. Okay. I usually have a face for radio, and now it's uh, broken into podcasts. Cool. Well, I threw a suit on today, man. I was thinking about this. I was like, I, you know, I have jackets, right? And I have to pick through what to wear and recycle because I only have so many. But I'm like, last podcast of shoot of the year. It's December 20th, 2022 <laughs> for anybody listening. And then I'm like, Travis is going to come sharp based on what i know about you and when we had our last meeting i'm like this dude's gonna come sharp so why don't i throw out the full suit for today well and you look you you look amazing i I, I feel like i didn't pull out the right attire (laughs) out of the closet i didn't mean i wasn't trying to one-up you or something man but i (laughs) I figured you'd you'd come correct so so today obviously i want to talk about uh benefits like i said uh i want to hear your history obviously two decades in this plus in this space 
I'm sure you've seen it all. Um, and so I want to hear about the evolution of the benefits world since you've been in it. But first, let's let's get to know you, sir. I've gotten a chance to know you over the past couple of months. I think you have some inter- interesting hobbies uh, that I'd like to have you share. But why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, man? Sure, sure. Um, an aspiring Midwesterner by birth. Okay. Uh, so I hail from around Jefferson City, Missouri, which is the capital of Missouri. Yeah. Um, uh, actually the, my exact hometown is Centertown, Missouri. Okay. And, uh, at that time it was population 351. Okay. So whenever I actually flew the coop, then did they change the sign? Oh, they had to change the sign by one, by one. Yeah. So we just marked it out and put a zero after that. Absolutely. So Centertown, yeah, what, what part of Missouri? Cause I, I went to Drury university in Springfield, Missouri, oh, yes. and that's where my wife is from as well. So where in relation to that's the Southwest corner of Missouri. So where was Centertown? So really uh, right in the middle, uh, between, uh, almost, uh, equal distance between St. Louis and Kansas city. Okay. So if you're familiar with Columbia, yeah. Oh, where yeah. the university of Missouri is, um, I'm about 35, 40 minutes from there. Okay. When you flew the coop though, where did you say you you went after that? Was that to college or, or where'd you head out to? Well, I, uh, uh, you know, growing up, uh, Jefferson City High School was really the, the foundational point with uh, sports that we were making mm-hmm. mention of earlier. Um, and then flew the coop 30 minutes up the way to <laughs> Westminster College. Uh, very, very similar to Drury. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, I think you all may have been in our conference. Well, I was going to say Westminster. I'm trying to figure. We were D1 when I started, and then dropped down to Division Two. Okay. Um, and so we were playing Rolla and I think Jeff. It was a Jeff City. I forgot what there was. There was a couple local colleges. Uh, Joplin. There was one in Joplin. I forgot the name of uh, Southwest Missouri State or something like that. Well, yeah, we all played, changed we played, names. Yeah, since I know. Then. I can't even keep track of the names <laughs> anymore. But yeah, that was the profile of, of colleges we were we were playing in soccer. So did you were you a cross country runner in college as well, or did you hang up the? No, I hung up my spurs. The spurs. Okay. I, I, hung, I hung up my spurs. Um, I had a, a, a very prolific uh, career in in sports um, at Jeff City. I ran track and cross country and. My primary sport was wrestling. Oh, really? So I'm one that. of those cuckoos. Okay. Um, but uh, but had a very successful career at that. Had a couple offers to uh, wrestle in college. But by the time that I was done uh, with my wrestling career um, placing in state, I, I hung up my shoes and my singlet <laughs> and uh, decided that I wanted to have a good college experience. And so Westminster was the place for me uh, in Fulton, Missouri. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, and what did you study while you were, while you were there? General business administration. That's a good plan. That, I, that's exactly what I did as well. Cause it's like, I don't know what I want to do, but it makes sense probably to get a business degree. Right. Well, it, it left me a lot of open doors. Yeah. For yeah. sure. But so talk me through, though, because I, I was very close on the cusp of not playing soccer in college, had, you know, already been admitted to UT, was going to go down and stay with a buddy. We had a dorm picked out. And about three weeks prior to actually deciding to go down there officially, I got a phone call and said, hey, do you want to play soccer? Come come check out Drury University campus, see what it's all about and let us know. And I, I just that there was that one trip made me change my mind. Well, well first off, you were saying where? where's Drury? Yeah, what, no, what that was it? like, is... well, I knew another buddy of mine had been recruited there too. And I was like, well, I've heard of it. It's in Missouri. I have no idea what it is. Are they any good? You know, you go through the, the, the whole, that was not pre-internet. I'm not that old, but like, that was like, you didn't know how to research it properly or where they stacked up. But I visited in the spring. It, the campus was beautiful. Grass was green. They had a beautiful field. It was, like I said, division one at the time. I'm like, 
you know what? I think I could do this. And it was, it was not a very long decision for me to make either. I think I'd convinced myself I didn't want to play soccer, but I really did. Um, so the re reason I ask you that is like, what was that evaluation like for you when you, you said, I'm going to hang all the stuff up? Did you ever have that lingering, oh, I wish I'd, I'd played or wish I'd pursue sports or were you happy? So I, I, left, I left everything on the mat whenever, whenever I uh, ended my career, my high school wrestling career. I, you know, I placed in state, which was, uh, I was a four-time four state qualifier. Okay. I finally placed in state um, after a very tumultuous wrestling season and I left it all on the mat. So Spencer, I was, I was ready to to move on to the next yeah. chapter in my life and, yeah. and Westminster was the right college for me cool. and and allowed me the opportunity to be really plugged in because Westminster was only 650 students okay yeah I think we had like 1300 or 1400 yeah, yeah we were pretty small too that's a good college experience though because well I mean part of it you get, you get to know everybody right and everybody knows everybody right so you're not really anonymous you're not getting away with making too much trouble but it's pretty fun when you see familiar faces on campus almost every single day and you Absolutely. develop your fin, friend group and things like that. So after college though, did you, I, I don't want to get into benefits just yet. Cause there's a couple cool things about you and there's a theme for some reason of <laughs> skydivers and scuba divers that come on my show. I don't know why. And you do both of those things. So I do have to ask what drew you to being as high as you possibly can in the world and then being as low as you possibly can in the world. I guess I'm just not comfortable on the ground. I guess not. Yeah. What's, what's up with that, man? Well, um, I'll, I'll start with skydiving. Okay. Um, so I, I am absolutely terrified of heights before 2001. Okay. Um, as, I was, uh, as I was hanging out with a friend one evening, he was talking about his upcoming birthday. Um, said, let's, let's do something that really pushes the envelope. Okay. For myself, that was a lot of, that was a lot of self-reflection because yeah. he said, well, let's go skydiving. If, if you've ever watched Point Break and yeah. as I've watched it, you know, a thousand times, <laughs> um, you know, you, you see, you see the ability, right. To, um, to jump out of a per perfectly good airplane yeah. and to be able to make it down to the ground safely. Yeah. Um, and so because of my fear of heights and knowing that I've always been a personality to not be controlled by fear, mm -hmm. um, although, you know, my knees would rattle, uh, sweats, uh, body shut down, um, you know, it was one where I said, if you make the reservation to go skydiving, I will go. I'll do it, yeah. So we, uh, we there were six of us that went for this birthday jump. Um, after, after that jump, uh, you know, we concluded that jump, then he and I both said, um, let's go ahead and continue this. Let's see, let's see where we can go. Yeah. And, and for me, it was every time that I saw that door open on the side of the plane, you see the open sky and I'd have those same body reactions that, you know, I needed to learn how to really hone that in yeah. and really center myself to, um, to break through that wall. Mm -hmm. So, and that, and that's shown up a lot of different places in my life. That's interesting. So I, you know, we were talking kind of off camera beforehand about, um, you know, Peter Atia and the Limitless show you, you, you watched with him and uh, Chris Hemsworth. And I was bringing up Wim Hof and the breathing techniques and stuff like that. I, I was listening to a guy the other day that was talking about nasal breathing and making sure you can actually control your breathing while he was doing it while he was going into an ice bath. And his concept was, is you need to be able to uh, control, I guess, the parasympathetic response is that your ability to 
maintain composure under extreme duress or stress when that fight or flight, uh, you know, uh, feeling is kicking in, just like you're talking about when that door is opening and your knees are buckling, but still be able to manage that. I imagine if you can manage your stress and be composed in that setting, anything that you encounter in the benefits world is, is, is pretty easy by comparison, right? This podcast is brought to you by True Captive Insurance a premier medical stop-loss captive for employer groups ranging from 25 to 1,000 employees. True Captive believes in healthcare that is personal and insurance that isn't complicated. That's why they take a white-glove approach, making it easy for employer groups to transition into a program built specifically for them. Check them out at truecaptive.com. Well, it shows up professional world. It shows up in my personal world, you know, yeah. um, Faced, faced with new family challenges, yeah. you know, what are my kids up to? Uh, you know, right now it's a divide and conquer between my wife and I on, on all their activities. Mm -hmm. And how many kiddos you got? So I've got two. two. Okay. I've got a beautiful daughter, 13 years uh, of age, and I've got a, an amazing son, great sense of humor. He's nine years nine. of age. Okay, 13 and nine, and yeah. probably pretty active, I'd imagine, at those ages, right? With Extremely. extracurriculars, yeah. So you, you guys divide and conquer and manage all the, you know, the organizational stress, right, of, of getting people where they need to go. Um, can I ask you, though, about, so we've done the skydiving, right? Yes. We've covered that. How frequently are you going to do that now? Are you still skydiving? I today? am. Okay. I am. I'm, uh, I am. I'm at 497 jumps. Oh my God! Uh, I am. Are you going to stop at 500? Is that the milestone we're going to? That, that, that's a significant milestone. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I will apply for my professional skydiving rating at that point. Okay. And so we'll see where it goes. What does that do for you if you get your professional rating? It, it's just another notch in the belt. Okay. Okay. So it would allow me to to do um, additional things, like if I wanted to fly into a stadium or something along those lines, I could do that. But ah. that, that's that's uh, that's that's for a, a really well, you know, future we, event. We we uh, live in Prosper, I was telling you, and they opened up the high school stadium. You know, of course, this is Texas, and football is high school football is king, and so they have this massive stadium. We go to the inaugural game. We don't know it, but there's a flyover, and a guy jumps out of an airplane. Lands in the fifty yard line. It's got an American flag and a Texas flag, and I mean it's the most it's the most Texas and America thing you can possibly imagine. But I guess you could you could eventually be that guy if you wanted to do that. I could eventually if I if I desire if you to. desire to do that. Yeah. But, so the other side of the spectrum, right? Obviously, going under sea level now. How did you discover that you wanted to scuba dive as well? Uh, my wife and I traveling. Okay. So so as we were. Uh, you know, when you get married, you're always looking for alignment and what you and your mate you know, what you can have in common. Yeah, yeah. And so our, our spectrums are completely different as, you know, my adventurous side. Uh, my wife's a little bit more grounded. And, uh, but scuba diving was one when we were making trips to Mexico or to mm -hmm. Grand Cayman or to Costa Rica. Uh, we both decided that that would be something, a hobby that we could share together. And Did so, y'all start as snorkeling and then go to scuba diving or just go right into the, the scuba diving? We, we had snorkeled before and yeah. then we were like, this is... This may be not as fun as as what we would like. Let's add a little layer yeah, and, yeah. and uh, intensity to it. And so we. But she's never gone up in the air and jumped out of a plane. Actually, she's she, she has she's okay. jumped twice. Okay. Yes. So uh, twice suggests that she's not all into it like you are. She she said that one of us has to survive as a as a as a married couple. That's fair. It's like it's like uh, you know the people that know the recipe for Coca Cola are never allowed to fly in the same plane together, right? right. Just in case it goes down. <laughs> Maybe a good idea that both Sartans are not on the, the same plane in case something happens, man. But so scuba diving was a this other um, kind of hobby of yours. But how do you decide which one you want to do and how often? You know, because obviously you've got 
work-life balance you got to keep as well. So is there just something with certain regularity you decide, hey, let's go here and go scuba dive now or, or what? Yeah, it really comes along with whatever travels we may have. And if we can plan ahead to make sure that we're, you know, we're current with our proficiencies. Uh, my wife, uh, uh, she did experience a kind of an inner ear situation okay. with one of our last dives. So our, our, our diving career is a little bit on pause. Well, you just have to find a new, maybe it's racing cars or something like that. Well, you know, we, we were talking about yeah, that yeah. earlier. I, I do like to find myself behind a fast car and either that, or I'm in the driver's seat while my wife is driving. Yeah. Uh, that, that is entertaining and, <laughs> and, uh, and scary all in Whether the Whether or not it's a fast car, she's still driving it fast, right? If she's anything like. She's got some wife. skills. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. Well, let's enter into the benefits world. I appreciate, I always love to get to know the person sitting on the couch and I am way less adventurous than you, uh, you know, but it's, so I, I'm always fascinated when somebody has a hobby like that, because it, I, I think I'm just kind of secretly vicariously drawn to the people that climb mountains or jump out of planes and stuff. Well, be careful. I know. Don't, you, don't invite me. You always have an open invitation. I'll do the racing in the cars. We'll do that. We'll, we'll start that. there. All right. So let's talk the benefits world, man. So you, you, uh, Studied benefits administration, or and, uh, not benefit, but business administration, right? Yeah. Probably didn't know you were going to get into insurance, right? But where did you start? Where did you start your career after college? So um, it was actually through a Westminster alumnus. Uh, his name is Tom Mangan. Okay. Uh, he's actually still in the insurance world, except for I'm not exactly sure where he is in the U.S. right now. Okay, okay. Uh, but he, um, he and I grew up in the same hometown, although we were years apart. When, um, when college was coming to conclusion, you know, um, can't say that I was maybe the most ideal student or, or, or mm. the grades may not have reflected, you know, the, the solid academic career that I had or didn't have. Um, all that to be said is, is, uh, I was having a little bit of trouble with, uh, finding my, you know, hopefully next home. Okay. Uh, professional career. Yeah. 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 We, we connected and he said, you know, why don't you, um, you know, why don't you come down to Atlanta, Georgia, uh, at that time, he was working for a company called Preferred Plan of Georgia, okay. which was uh, ultimately a PPO network. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so he took a leap of faith with me, put me on this project where I was actually reviewing massive amounts of contracts mm. uh, through this PPO network and making sure that if, if you know, a Blue Cross or an Aetna or a Cigna accessed their network because mm -hmm. maybe they didn't have a really robust presence there that there's a, there's a access fee that they were supposed to be reimbursed, ah. right. For this ability to have a solid footing in, in Atlanta, Georgia or the surrounding areas. Make a long story short, as I was diving through these contracts, I was starting to realize that numbers of access points and the revenue weren't aligned. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, at that time, I was proficient in Excel. I'm no longer proficient in Excel. Yeah. A, a dinosaur. Um, but uh, anyway, make a long story short, I uncovered um, a hair over a million dollars of, of, of missing revenue. Okay. Um, which was, it completely took the blinders off because I didn't really understand what I was doing. Yeah. You know, ultimately, it was really financial. I was looking at contracts. Yeah. I was looking at volume of, of access points and then multiplying that out by the access fee. It was real easy. Um, but what I didn't know at that time was is, uh, through that, through that um, analysis, uh, that one, you know, a little over a million dollars, that that added to the bottom line for the company, which was, in due diligence to be acquired by what is now MultiPlan okay. or PHCS. 
So you had a significant role, it seems like, to play. I mean, you uncover a million dollars. This is what, 2002, 2003? So well. this, I mean, this was in, uh, in 1998. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So 98. So, I mean, that's significant. Even today's dollars, a million bucks. If you, if you do a project and find a million dollars, people are going to be happy with you. Sure. So the, but you helped, obviously, uh, clean up the books a little bit and, and help it for acquisition. So did you get notoriety within the organization? Did, did people acknowledge your efforts uh, in doing so? They did. Okay. They, they extended an offer and asked me to move to Louisville, Kentucky okay. um, to work for uh, the mothership. Um, I had no desire to move to Louisville, Kentucky. Not that I have anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have nothing wrong with Louisville, uh, but it wasn't the right place in my life. So that same alumnus, uh, Tom, um, actually ended up at the conclusion of the uh, transaction he moved to a startup organization in Athens, Georgia, okay. uh, for Athens Regional Health Center, um, and so it was a startup. It was a startup health insurance company. Hmm. Um, in Athens, Georgia, there was two hospitals. Uh, one that uh, had the Blues contract, so Blue Cross Blue Shield. Of course, that funneled you know ninety uh, percent of all the revenue through that hospital. And Athens Regional was the, considered the indigent hospital, and so they said, "Well, we're trying to you know new leadership. We're trying to turn this around." why don't we start our own health insurance company? And so I was employee number eight at, um, at Athens Regional um, Health Plans. How'd you like the startup world? Uh, once again, didn't even know what I was in. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I had done this contract project under my prior employer, um, now moving into this health insurance carrier world. Mm -hmm. Well, what does this mean? Um, and so they put me through a kind of a rigorous coursework. Um, so I learned um, provider credentialing. Um, tongue is still suffering from no coffee this morning or lack of coffee. <laughs> um, so I learned provider credentialing, what it took to be able to contract it with the doctor and what reimbursements look yeah. like. Yeah. Um, actuarial. So we assisted uh, with our uh, internal actuaries on formulating what the risk and price points should be for that business. Um, customer service, which I really feel like set the foundation of what the end consumer and or my clients, what their employees go through on a daily basis, trying to access healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately my, uh, I, I guess my personality fit a little bit better in the sales world. And so um, I was a sales rep, started working with brokers um, and I quickly identified very proficient, sophisticated mm -hmm. brokers and how they um, really operated with their clients and then I saw the other side of what we would call agents at that time, right? Those who may not really understand the craft or have a deep knowledge about the, uh, the healthcare space, mm -hmm. but had relationships. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, way back when relationships uh, were really the Well, I feel like we dropped the nomenclature agents. Now it's kind of shifted to brokers might be what you just described, right? And then we've got folks that consider themselves consultants. And it's, again, in the, in the end of the day, that's kind of synonyms for the same thing. But to me, and I've talked about this quite a bit on the show, it suggests a certain capability set, right? Or it yeah. suggests that there's a, a slightly different focus on the benefits world rather than just shopping insurance from one carrier to the next. There's a much more consultative, strategic approach to what you do, or at least... In, in name, that's suggesting that yeah. what you're doing. But I think the agent terminology, that's, that's really only terminology, I think, today that might apply to my, my homeowner's agent, right? Or, you know, a captive agent or something like that. So d how did you discover that you were able to discern you know, the who's who and why did you gravitate towards the more strategic uh, broker set? 
Well, when the, um, the agents that I was referring to, when they would literally call me and say, Travis, I need you to go to my client. Mm -hmm. I need you to present your proposal. I need you to sell your proposal. <laughs> and then I need you to enroll your proposal. Yeah. And you're um, like, well, what are you going to do then? Yeah. I, they were, they were going to co collect their compensation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so, you know, it really allowed me to really have keen insight as to an agent, a broker, consultant, whatever those may be. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, it's interesting though, but I think you might be probably, I'm guessing you had an epiphany at some point where you're like, well, I'm doing all the sale, but they're getting paid. Right. Like yeah, I have a correct. couple of people have had this epiphany as well and shifted towards the consulting side themselves. So when was your aha moment? Was there one or was it just a, a combination of a bunch? Well, it, it really was due to my, uh, you know, I was, I was in Athens with Athens area health plan for about two, two and a half years. Um, we worked in a 16 county radius. So very, very small um, marketplace for mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. And we had really gone through, you know, I had gone through really all the opportunities with my agents, brokers, and what they controlled as far as their client portfolios. And, uh, and living in a college town, you know, it loses its luster as a professional. Mm -hmm. And so really I had come to a defining moment where if, if I was really going to branch out, um, you know, because it was unintentional for me to get into insurance in general as we've kind of gone through the yeah, history. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but now that I was rooted, you know, th a solid three years in and had seen the network side, had seen the startup of a health healthcare company and now had been really, um, dealt or had delved into what agents, brokers, consultants were doing. You know, I was like, I, I think I have all the capabilities to be able to, to make a transition, um. So I reached back out to uh, Tom Mangan. Man, this Tom Mangan guy, he's showing up a lot in your I, career. I owe him a I lot. I was going to say, you might owe him a little bit uh, for this, but that's, that's awesome. It's always good to have. Would you have considered him your mentor? Yes. Or was he a peer? I mean, was he the same age as you? or, or had... uh, He was um, four or five years older. Okay. Would you have considered him a mentor, though, for you in your career? Absolutely. Okay. So you reached out to him again and said, hey, Tom, I'm ready for a minute. Almost like he was your agent at that, at that point. You know, yeah, he's my sports agent. agent. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> what's my next contract yeah, look yeah, like? Yeah, yeah. Who, who's, who's interested? But, so you reached out to him, and then what, what, was that, uh, what was the next step there? So the next step was, as he said, Travis, you know, um, and this, is, this obviously Dallas is, um, has been an extremely successful city for many, right? Those whose families extend, mm -hmm. you know, a lifetime and then for transplants like myself um, to make a long story short he said you know why, why don't you come and visit um, the Metroplex why don't you visit Dallas DFW um, hey by the way the weekend that you're coming in is also the Byron Nelson golf tournament okay yeah not too bad uh, it, it was amazing um, a complete game changer and he said I'll set up some interviews for you while you're in Dallas okay with some you know agencies and or uh, uh, vendors in the healthcare space and we'll see where it goes. Cool. Cool. Um, did you, did you fall in love with Dallas immediately or no? The Byron Nelson tournament at that point in time and being in the, uh, in the pavilion of the party tent, um, really was, uh, exciting for me. Uh, it was, it was what I was looking for, um, in regards to community. I knew I had gone to, um, uh, school college with some folks uh, that were from the Dallas area. Okay. And so I reached out to them. And so I was able to plug in as a transplant, cool. you know, with friends and professional. Um, and, and, and then da Dallas has been home for Is this where years. Marsh and McLennan enters the picture or, or no? 
Radeon Health's Level Funded Plus offers brokers and consultants transparent and reliable level-funded insurance for groups as small as 10 employees. With national PPO network access and 100% return of claims fund surplus, small groups can gain more control over healthcare spend without the need for IHQs or claims data. Discover a great alternative to fully insured plans at levelfundedplus.com. So, uh, no, I, I interviewed with several other providers but uh, or vendors, but I uh, inter, uh, interviewed with the partners at MHBT. MHBT, okay, yes. okay, okay. So I know, I realize, obviously, you, you can unpack for me all the entities that rolled up to be, you know, MMA today. So M- MHBT is uh, an organization here in Dallas. Was it regional as well? Was it national uh, at the time? Or where was their concentration of offices? Sure, Texas-based, Texas Dallas-based. Okay. Okay. Um, what we what anybody would consider at that time a super regional yeah. um, brokerage yep. no, exactly um, what you talk about didn't have a national presence um, although we had national clients um, all that to be said is is the opportunity with MHBT was to cultivate my career um, opportunity for equity position mm-hmm. with MHBT uh, obviously through success of of uh, being a, a broker or consultant um, and uh, was extended an offer to become a partner in 2010. And then um, in a partner meeting that we had, uh, someone said, well, what are we worth out in the open market? Um, and by the way, the world is changing. So yeah. I, I kind of have to flip that comment back. The The partner meetings were, where are we today with our, off, our client services, um, our expertise, um, where's the world moving? And, you know, we had watched Obamacare uh, mm-hmm. or the Affordable Care Act come to light. That was, that was a, a complete change in the entire landscape of, of, of compliance and legislation or regulation that affected um, not just one set of employers, but every employer. Okay. So you had the opportunity to either put your head in the sand and say that this was going to be repealed or you could um, invest forward and get your arms around it and, and really embrace what it is and prepare your clients and, uh, and hopefully be introduced to prospective clients that needed that guidance or yep. that counsel. Yep. So anyway, make a long story short, um, you know, we were seeing the world change. We were seeing a lot of acquisition take place, and we were also seeing um, the competitive landscape of, 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 our, of who we were competing against and, you know, actuaries, medical directors, ERISA attorneys, um, you know, technology, communication, all of these were facets that we saw the world moving and it takes a significant amount of investment to be able to get your um, alignment with where the world is. So was it a proactive putting yourself out in the market? Had there been a previous approach? Like who who courted who uh, there? Well, uh, once we decided that the investment was going to be maybe more than the partners could bear, uh, then that was the question of, well, if we were to decide to go out to market, you know, what, mm-hmm. what type of an evaluation would we have? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everything from there cascaded to um, uh, interviewing the marketplace. Um, we, we spoke with anybody and everybody just to make sure that we understood, you know, where they were, mm-hmm. how they were evolving in this. And, um, and although I never, we never really thought we were going to, um, align ourselves with such, such a significant presence of, uh, Marsh or Marsha McLennan, um, it was absolutely the right, the right opportunity for us at that time. Well, you take me back a minute. Cause you, you mentioned Obamacare 
or, you know, obviously the Affordable Care Act. Did that start this wave of acquisition that we see today? Because, I mean, there's just so much activity in the, the broker world today where it seems like every day you see an announcement from somebody rolling up to somebody else. So yes. w- was it predating the Affordable Care Act or did that accelerate it? Um, it really, after, the, after, uh, after well, it was implemented in 2010, don't quote me on that, although now it's um, permanent yeah. that I said that. Yeah. Um, two years after, I think that's 2012. Okay. Um, that's, that's where we, we really started to, um, speak with other, um, agencies or brokerages. Where were they at? Um, they were feeling even worse struggles than we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were doing some minor acquisitions at that time. Okay. Okay. Um, nothing significant. Um, and then as we entered into the Marsha McLennan, um, relationship, they were missing a hub in the Southwest region. Uh, and so MHBT was um, the anchor hub. Okay. So the corporate office for the Southwest region. Okay. Well, I just see so much activity these days. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that work with what you would consider a quote unquote boutique or mom and pop agency. And you wonder, you know, how do you compete nowadays um, with a Marsha McLennan, with an Aon, with a Mercer, with a Lockton because of the, the scale and the resources they have that it, a lot of times it seems and seems an ine- inevitability that they will eventually be gobbled up, right? Because they're running good businesses, they're smart people, but it's a David and Goliath type proposition sometimes to compete. And so I just wonder how much acquisition and M&A activity is going to continue over the next you know, five, 10 years, where will the mom and pop style agency still exist as we consider today? I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts uh, about that. Well, m- mom and pops are already really exhausted. Yeah. You know, yeah. they've run their track. Um, even, even your what would be considered a super regional mm-hmm. type of agency, what an MHBT was. Um, would, are, a, would a Higginbotham be in that kind of realm of a super regional? Well, you, you know, Higginbotham's done an extremely good job of, of seeing what's transpiring, mm-hmm. not only regionally, um, but on a national basis. And, you know, they have, they've put or postured themselves to make, you know, a, a significant amount of yeah. acquisition and or state expansion themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say that they're, uh, they're they eventually, that that may be a decision for them. Yeah. Uh, but the way they've postured their track, I think I think they're going to run for quite a while. Well, yeah, I mean, you use the term super regional, and that's the first name that popped in my head because I know they don't have a national presence, but they certainly do have heavy regional south, southwest, and southeast presence, and there's smart folks over there. It's just yes, the first name to pop pop into my head. But I just kind of contemplate the future of this consulting space, or do you, through the leverage of technology, could you be a solopreneur in the the benefit space and still compete pretty well if you've got efficiencies created through technology and you're just a good salesperson or you're just a good consultant. I just love to think about what the shakeup of this space may be, but I'd like to shift over a little bit to, uh, if you don't mind, Travis, kind of some self-funded philosophy, because I know you do a lot of that. That's obviously the naming convention of the show. Um, But I always like to hear kind of personal philosophies about the space, what kind of stuff you like to do. Um, But so how did you get introduced to this notion of self-funding in general? Was it, was it at, MHBT or was it, was it prior? So it was at, it was at MHBT. Um, as I was, uh, growing my, my clientele, my portfolio, um, you know, fully insured was relatively easy to grasp. Um, and then, you know, as you're getting opportunities to visit with other employers, um, obviously the, the more you move up, 
the employee size chain. Sure, sure. Um, Self-funding becomes more of an opportunity and or sitting back and discovering through the conversation with the client or prospective client that, you know, they were looking to take more control, mm-hmm. uh, more control of their um, healthcare experience, plan designs, um, at least at that time when I was initially exposed. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it was a, um, it was trial by fire. I taught myself self-funding in about two weeks. How did you teach yourself? Well, darkening a lot of doorways with MH, within MHBT for okay. <laughs> those brokers consultants that were a little bit more seasoned uh, than I was. Uh, you know, Kyle Moss and Kirk Johnson, Marcus Humphrey, um, Fred Piscina, um, all of those gentlemen um, were internal mentors and, and coaches for mm-hmm. me. Um, but they also said, listen, the best thing to do is, you know, dive into it, start reading contracts. Um, you know, we'll work you through some mechanics, but then reach out to um, some trusted stop loss uh, vendor partners yeah. and, you know, have them run you through, you know, how the contract works and exposures front end and back end and in the middle and all of those particulars. And so um, it was uh, it was drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Well, I, I have a biased opinion about that, obviously being an ex-stop loss rep myself. But one of the things that I considered as a strategic advantage for me as a salesperson is the willingness to go train young consultants, young account managers on self-funding. I figured if I could spend time training them on what is stop loss? Well, how does self-funding work? What's a spec? What's an, literally what I did for my YouTube videos, doing that in person and offering up like, Hey, I'm not going to come in and talk to you about sun life at all. I'm going to come in and teach you about this or teach you about that. They would, they would welcome me in the door. Absolutely. And then by giving that free value right over time, they'd associate, oh, well, Spencer, he sells Sun Life Stop Loss. Let's always make sure he gets an opportunity. Or in a jump ball situation, let's get, let's get put it their way. So that was kind of that approach to me, consulting with a consultant by training or educating people that needed that education. But still to this day, and one of the, again, one of the reasons I do this and one of the reasons I made those videos is like, there's not a set course. Nobody sits you down and says, all right, watch these 25 modules and learn self-funding. <laughs> you have to kind of go do it on your own you unless, unless that agency has created their own internal uh, program to do so. So are you seeing more and more formalized training happening these days or is it still go figure it out? Well, uh, there's a carrier no longer in existence called Great West. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cigna now has kind of really acquired their, their contracts. The, uh, we, we have discussed internally, how do we replicate the uh, Great West Group School? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, any, any broker or consultant um, that you come into contact with that started their career at Great West, they are, they are absolutely the experts and technicians whenever it comes to um, stop loss and mm-hmm. understanding contracts and mm-hmm. the functionality. Um, so... Uh, I was I was actually just speaking with our regional CEO about this, and he was, and did go through uh, the Great Great West Group School. Yeah. And so not only on a regional basis, but on a national basis, we're we're um, you know really trying to understand our opportunities. Well, I'll send him to, send him my YouTube videos just in case. Absolutely. I'm informally still training to this day. A lot of people on stop loss <laughs> insurance. I, I I've discovered that, but I have heard about the infamous Group School. I never got to go to Group School myself. I did go to uh, like 10 days of training when I was a 
insurance adjuster, uh, claims adjuster for Liberty Mutual. Um, but I don't think I ever sat down and had stop loss school. It was kind of like uh, ponying up to a mentor. Mine was Ryan Nystrom at Sun Life. And, oh, yeah, you know, Ryan. Ryan. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they had hired Ryan and he was similar profile to me, more of an analyst by trade before being a sales rep, had extreme success very early on. And like, oh, let's replicate that model. And so they plucked me out of the you know, the analyst world as well. But Ryan kind of taught me everything that I under learned uh, about stop loss insurance. And then I had a great mentor, Eric Templin at Hayes Companies as well, that taught me self-funding. But it was really just exposure, repeated exposure, hearing the right conversations, understanding the right words. Then you figure out how all the moving parts work over time. Um, but it's fun, to, it's fun to continue to, I would say, advocate for this because it's still to this day, not everybody even inside of our industry understands self-funding. Um, so as you're going and as you're sort of evolving over the course of a decade or so, talk to me through the evolution personally, the way that you approach groups and kind of some of the strategic things that you like to think about some of the conversations you're having with employers. I mean, just tell me, walk me through your philosophy a little bit, if you, if you don't mind, because I'd love to hear, hear it from you. Sure. Absolutely. Well, first off, you want to try to have an opportunity where they're, they're going to be open to, to a type of conversation to where you can understand um, what are what are the challenges that they're facing within within their their organization as a whole how do you evaluate that openness um, is it probative questions uh, what, what what is the thing that triggers you aha they might be considering this well you know as well as I do first off it's body language yes yeah right yeah the closed arms and the you know the the, the poking and prodding of, yeah. of those uh, discovery questions. And, you know, if you're getting one word answers or the body, body posture sure. there, you know, then, then there have been times, you know, that I've said, Hey, I, I want to tell you how much I value your time, but I also want to make it extremely productive for both of us. Yeah. Um, you know, can, can we kind of change or can we change or expand the conversation that we're having yeah. to really make it worth your while? Or if you, if you really took the the appointment as just obligatory, you know, I, I want to give you time back in your day. Yeah, yeah, because enough. at the end of the day, you know, there's nothing more, uh, there, there's never a, a more brutal situation than someone who's obligatory taking your yes. appointment. Yes, yes, agreed. Um, in, in my 22-year career with uh, MHBT, now MMA, you know, really uh, the opportunity that, the opportunities that present themselves are through my higher level connections. So typically by the time that I'm in front of someone, uh, there has been a, a center of influence mm -hmm. who's introduced us, uh, a center of influence who may have just had conversation with them on my behalf, asking, you know, well, kind of what's going on in your world? Or let me tell you what, you know, Travis and I's relationship has been for however long that spans. Okay. So it really warms up, the, warms up the conversation before we ever really meet in person. And then, you know, Spencer, the, the world of a, of, a, of a broker or a consultant, um, and, a, and you made mention of this earlier, has really changed. You know, earlier it was shopping the plans, mm -hmm. finding the cheapest price, um, and then the execution of, uh, of that policy, and then open enrollment, right? How do you communicate it effectively to the employees so they can maximize and value the benefit that the employer's, you know, putting a lot of dollars into. Sure. But we, we, you know, we're really starting to try to understand the uniqueness of their industry. Um, you know, technology, industry, you know, a, a, a attraction, uh, recruitment and attraction and retention. 
Um, you know, the, the construction industry still has uh, challenges, whether it be language or, uh, or, or, or socioeconomic challenges yeah, yeah. as to how benefits are perceived um, versus just straight pay. Um, so, you know, our conversations are moving in, in a, a multiple of facets, right? You know, how, how, what is the value of your, of the benefits in which that you're expending a lot of dollars on, right? Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you believe your employees are, um, perceiving that? Sure. Um, how are you communicating? You know, so everyone, now that we're in a multi-generational workforce, um, you know, we have apps on phones, we have digitized, uh, digitized flipbook type materials. You have microsites. You still have the stone and chisel. I want it in paper. Yes. Um, you know, all the way to you know brain sharks, and and then you get to the uh, employee experience through enrollment, right? Yeah. And um, platforms uh, such as Business Solver and B Swift, and gosh, there's so many out there. You know, how does all that round out? you know, the discussion or the effectiveness of what you're trying to offer, you know, total rewards and those particulars. And then, the, you know, then there may be also some conversation about the health plan, right? So we've either had good experience, okay experience, or we've not had such a great experience with our health plan. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, it could be uh, those conversations could uh, discuss about, um, you know, why they're not attracting or retaining um, that skilled labor, especially in this fierce environment that we have. Um, it could be that, uh, um, you know, we're, we're, we, we want to make our uh, employees happier, healthier, more productive. You know, we don't, we're not getting the analytics, right? What are, what are the driving trends within our health plan mm-hmm. that we can aggressively, um, you know, either put in a um, carrier, ASO, TPA um, um, solution, Right hypertension, diabetes. Um, so it, so- it sounds like throughout the course of this conversation, I'm hearing there's a lot of, it's mostly inquiry from your, your standpoint, right? Like what, what, what is important to you? Number one, correct. Where are the problems, right? How are you communicating what you have to the employees? What type of feedback are you getting? What are the demographics of your groups? So there's a lot of investigational, right? And then I'm sure at that point you have at least a, a more narrow picture a, perhaps a solution set that you might be offering. Do you do a lot of yourself? Do you do a lot of transitional, fully insured to self-funded transitions? Or are you picking up most groups that already have been self-funded and you're sort of honing their, their attack? We're on a mission to partner with the most innovative companies in America to fix health benefits one plan at a time. NavMD has created a blueprint that delivers world-class benefits to 155 million Americans. Better benefits starts with data intelligence. Our platform is empowering the next generation of advisors to zero in on opportunities to optimize the plan, build the right team, implement proven strategies and solutions. Join us on our journey to revolutionize health benefits. Let NavMD put you a step ahead. It's really a combination of of all. Um, You know, we were talking about ACA, Affordable yeah, Care Act, yeah. you know, that really was a, that was really a springboard, you know, for, uh, for those that were in fully insured and those who may be um, absolutely petrified of self-funding. Yeah, yeah. 
it allowed them an opportunity to dip their toe into what we call level funded plans yes. yep. or, or yep. hybrid self-funding. So, you know, we really tried to create a, um, a trajectory to say, listen, you know, if you're in fully insured, you're not um, pleased with how that is operating today. Well, let's, let's look at op- opportunities in the level funded world, which mm-hmm. is ultimately self-funding on training wheels. Yep. Absolutely. Um, access to data, uh, or, or more trends data, um, you know, the ability to potentially receive um, reimbursement of a surplus in the event that they run well that year. Um, and then, uh, you know, however they have then, you know, uh, I guess absorbed um, gra- and gravitated to that hybrid world, then we will take a look at then starting to do feasibility analysis mm-hmm. in the self-funding world to see if it makes sense for them. Cool, cool. Well, I, I love the feasibility studies. I used to do those Monte Carlo simula- simulations myself, you know, running the thousand or 10,000 iterations <laughs> of potential outcomes and giving a, a score of, you know, and some of it's, some of it's just guessing, right? But based on the, the group's, uh, you know, makeup and history of claims and things like that, you can at least get the opportunity to win, right? Like if it does make sense as a big picture to do it or not, how has, you know, kind of pulling it forward to present day, I'd love to hear, you know, recently I had some folks on the show talk about uh, the CAA, right? And the impact of transparency laws and things like that. How do you think that's going to start changing the conversations or probably already has with your groups preparing for, I think December 27th is, is the come to Jesus date. How is that kind of changing the conversations you're having with these groups and, and taking action uh, to make sure they're, compliant uh, are you guys having those i'm sure this is kind of the uh i would say precipitating most of your conversations these days yeah it's kind of the bane of our existence right now okay okay um you know but you know under, understanding where a client is the carrier the carrier's position um you know uh providing that transparency service on the client's behalf and or recognizing uh if the um, aso carrier or tpa is going to perform those functions um explaining now that there may be an unbudgeted cost associated yeah. with that with those services yeah uh, and now obviously in the world of prescription right the transparency and compliance that's um, al- aligned with that so we uh, fortunately enough we have a tremendous amount of compliance yeah. uh, uh, experts uh, behind us and ultimately they built a, a playbook okay right so I have a uh, I have a transparency guide for dummies that luckily nice. I, I get to uh, okay. I get to utilize on a daily basis to, um, you know, guide a client with whatever whichever platform they're on, but guide them through on making sure that they're up. Well, to I think you know transparency is a overutilized word sometimes, and you know what transparency actually means depends on the context of what you're saying it. But in my opinion the intent of these regulations are a good thing. Now, what there's always unintended consequences of, of government regulation and intervention, but my hope is that it makes it easier to shop, makes it easier to uncover ahead of time what something may cost and allow a consumer to make a more educated decision. And then also obviously helps employers at scale uncover where some of the unnecessary expenditures are and the overpaying of certain procedures and things like that. I think it'll hopefully make everybody better, but of course the execution of those things is going to be yet to be determined. So how do you think this is going to shake out next year? I mean, we're going to have some scary situations. We're going to have some employers made examples of some big fines. What, what do you think if you had a little crystal ball, what was going to happen in the next six months with CA? I, I don't mean to sound, um, 
uh, boring at this uh, on my response. <laughs> okay, that's all right. But it, you know, any time that something of this magnitude comes through, it's it's going to take six months to a year more for us to really understand how this is going to change the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, um, I believe due to the transparency and the and the public um, outlay of that information, I think you're going to see um, some very innovative companies. Um, obviously be able to get their arms around these elusive um, reimbursements, you know, behind the scenes mm-hmm. that, you know, when we, when we hear about the health systems and the carriers, you know, and how they come to the uh, 1159 PPO or, or network contracting uh, disagreements. Yeah. I think, I think what, in my opinion, uh, I believe what's going to happen is, is you're going to have that data be collected by some innovative healthcare company and it, it's really going to um, bring that that cost transparency, not only on medical services but also in the in the pharmacy space. Uh, yeah. I think it's going to bring it to the surface. Um, we saw this a little bit with um, Dr. Bricker mm-hmm. and um, and Compass, where they were um, you know kind of reengineering data, and then we're offering you know consumer services to be able to show quality. And, and potential cost before the service was rendered yeah. or being able to, um, you know, really have the ability to shop, you know, particular health systems for particular services. And then the member, you know, having the opportunity to, to play part of that consumer steerage, yeah. right? Where were they going to go? Where were they finally going to go? Um, because usually it went towards their deductible and out-of-pockets and, if they were on a uh, consumer-driven health plan or a high-deductible health plan, HSA eligible, you know they're they're trying to preserve what assets they have in their HSA accounts, and Absolutely. so you know the engagement by the consumer, I think, is is uh, is just uh, barely dipping the toe in the water. I think we're going to start to see once again extremely innovative healthcare companies um, pull that data and then be able to use it um, on the on the um, for the for the for the benefit of the employer and also for the employee. Well, and I can envision a day when we get to an Amazon-like shopping experience for uh, for healthcare. Like I can I can I can see this being perhaps part of that tipping point to get us there. The technology, the framework for an Amazon-style um, website already exists, right? It's being able to extract that data, make sense of it, and then present it to a person who can interface with it simply to make decisions. I don't think we're that far away, and I know there's a couple. Um, solution providers I think I've even talked to that are they're attacking that exact um, MO. But that's that's when we get to the point where if we can make it as easy to shop for a knee replacement as it is to shop for a blender, yep. um, then you can empower the consumer to make better decisions at scale. And we're going to see hopefully trillions of dollars of impact to that over the course of time if we can make it that simple. Easier said than done, but I think that's I think that's hopefully where we should be driving to. Now I want to kind of pull up big picture. Oh, go if ahead. You don't, if you don't, if you don't mind yeah. me, I want to uh, yeah. I just want to extend uh, expound yeah, upon please, that one a little please. bit. Um, you know, Spencer, th- those are those are already transpiring um, over the past six to seven years. Um, I refer to it as incentivized healthcare, mm-hmm. right? So the um, the reduction or elimination of out-of-pocket expenses, whether yes. it be deductible or co-payments. Yep. These particular benefit plan designs are, are really making an entree into the marketplace. 
you know, we're seeing um, major carriers uh, align in either joint ventures um, or they're um, really creating them internally. Uh, for, for instance, um, you know, United Healthcare did a joint venture with a company called Bind. Bind yep, yep. Now it's called Surest. Yep. Um, you know, where someone has the ability, right, to shop the entire Metroplex and identify, you know, a $0 cost, uh, a $10 cost, or a $20 cost, yeah. or whatever it may yeah. be. The copay range, right? Yeah, yeah the copay yeah. range, yeah. or, or once again. Simple doing something like that yeah. as well. So, yeah, and simple pay. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I see, I see the progression with our major carriers. Um, they're, they're still, obviously, operating in their traditional manner, yeah. and they're, they're bringing a few innovations to the marketplace. I think they'll continue to drive that. Um, but they move at a little bit slower pace. Mm -hmm. But these joint ventures and or these new innovations within health plans, um, like I said, I refer to it as incentivized health care. My team is beat over the head because I've used that term. I can't tell you how many times. But in my opinion, I, I, I see those gaining significant momentum because employers are looking to provide, um, once again, best-in-class um, uh consumer steerage yeah. um, and then better value for their well and the, the only caveat I would place on a consumer driven plan that's you know sort of constructed or in partnership with the carrier right is we're still focusing on the front end expenditures right so maybe we lower that copay from twenty five dollars to ten well that might sound good to the 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 person right the member but what do the back end contracts look like? Like, is there is, is there a significant enough delta to the employer's bottom line by this decision making process that it really has a, a big financial impact, or is it just a little bit of window dressing to make the person feel better that they got a ten dollar copay <laughs> instead of a fifteen? Right? I think you need to, you know, at least know what's happening on the back end of those things, or align yourself with an independent party that's helping construct those type of plans to get the biggest bang for your buck. Otherwise, it's just repositioning slightly a carrier plan. I mean, this is just my, my personal perspective, but it's, it's directionally moving in the right direction, no doubt. I think we just, I like things to be taken to the, the furthest degree <laughs> um, to get the biggest impact. Um, but what about, like, kind of, let's zoom out. Let's close, close things out a little bit. Big picture of healthcare over the next five, 10 years. Um, what is your perspective? You've, you've been in this a dec uh, couple decades now, this industry, and you've seen a lot of the evolution. Where do you think we're going with this? Even, whether you weigh in politically, I don't even care. Just like your perspective of, of what you think our healthcare system might look like a decade from now. Well, I think the, um, or, you know, at least th through research and once again, trying to pay attention to as much, um, I think, accurate data as possible is the government realizes that still the the conduit through employers you know it's it's 95 percent of all health care is delivered through mm -hmm. um, through the employer channel um, so when it comes to when it comes to you know is the is the government going to take over health care I, I think that that will be 20 years down the road at, at them trying to take a stab at that the 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 price tag is just too large. Yeah, yep. Um, and and they don't have the really the ability and or the 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 experts or knowledge to be able to really delve into it and do something with it effective, effectively. Um, so you know we, we we've seen this onset of of traditional carriers. You know we've seen them now create um, you know EPOs. You know 
HMOs have, have really reestablished themselves as an opportunity because okay. um, the carriers have realized that, you know, they can, they can try to negotiate contracts on volume mm-hmm. and, and quality. Um, ACOs, you know, so we're seeing this, this movement um, to, to more uh, quality delivery of care, controlling costs, and volume of business, mm-hmm. uh, which was really kind of the old HMO premise, which was, you know, we're willing to uh, receive this type of reimbursement because we believe that we're going to have this volume of business right. to make, make our revenue numbers. But adding on to, um, you know, adding on to then, uh, you know, the description of, um, you know, these incentivized healthcare uh, arrangements, right, where the consumer now is engaged. We also have reference-based pricing that has been um, a little slower to adopt than really what what I... Like it works in pockets, right? It works in pockets, you know, um, and we're also starting to see major health systems, right, whom are entering into engagements with traditionally reference-based pricing TPAs. Okay. Right. So, there, you know, in the, here in the marketplace, um, you know, uh, Baylor has always pushed back in reference-based pricing um, uh, as, as many potential consumers have figured that out going through the health system on a reference-based pricing plan. Um, uh, Baylor was always uh, the, the, the sharpest tool mm-hmm. in the shed whenever it came to uh, recognizing that and then obviously, um, you know, trying to make sure they move through their proper reimbursements. Okay. But I think that I think that the reference based pricing model is is evolving where we're having a high performance network next to a reference based pricing uh, model next to a um, traditional PPO contract. Okay. So uh, aligning price points with each of the different yeah. opportunities. But um, do you ever envision a world where we don't have the notion of a network at all? I I, I believe that that is. Probably five five years away. Because that's kind of where I think this should head. Um, direct contracts, of course, obviously kind of do that at a micro micro scale. But why? My, my question is always, why do we need a network? I understand things like volume. I understand they're competitively trying to price based on how much volume they predict to come in the door. What, I mean, I don't need a network to go buy a truck. I, I mean, I don't need a network to go buy a, a, a T-shirt, but I need a network to to access care. Like, I, I don't think you, you technically you don't need a network, but my, my concept is, do we even need that network? Has, has its purpose, um, been served and is it no longer required with the access points with the technology we have at our disposal today? Could we do away with it? So, so you think that is possible yourself? Yes. Okay. And that's where I personally would like to see us go. How do we get there? Is the, how do we, the, get, the, there? How do we get there is the a couple trillion dollar question, of course. And I think there's some competing interests that would like us not to get there as well. So it'll probably be a lot slower than we hope as well. <laughs> but why don't we do this, Travis? I appreciate you. I know, Nathan, we probably exceeded an hour, haven't we? It feels like uh, hour, six. hour six. Okay, cool. Then let's go ahead and wrap things up, man. But I appreciate you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. But closing thoughts, man. What are, what's something you want to leave the audience with? Well, uh, you know, I, I just want to leave the audience with optimism. Cool. Um, you know, as as you're speaking with many um, brokers and consultants out in the world, right? And, and, and what they're hearing from their employers. Um, and, and at my, my young age of 47 and my 22 years, um, at least with Marsha McLennan, I have, I have complete optimism mm-hmm. about where healthcare is going. Um, I, I just recommend and always suggest that everyone pay attention with the innovations 
and um, not get not get holed up in the traditional way of 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 looking at our clients, their challenges, um, you know, our proficiencies with being able to identify cost containment mm-hmm. within their health plans or across risk exposures or compliance exposures within their entire benefit plan. You know, all of us are hopefully uh, working smarter, not harder, <laughs> uh, but it's complete optimism. Uh, it's complete optimism for the future. Well, I share your optimism. I'm glad you said that. I was going to, didn't have the appropriate time, but I was going to ask you how you stay excited about benefits, you know, after 20 years. And this, this industry has its challenges, there's no doubt. But I think yeah, your answer probably would have been optimism, right? I think yeah. there's hope for the future. I do think there's some absolutely brilliant people in our industry that are brilliant. seeking to solve it from every possible angle, right, as well. It's not just the broker consultant world. And so I'm optimistic as well. I wouldn't be having a show if I was pessimistic about the future and just had people on to just bitch and moan about benefits for, for an hour. But um, I appreciate you, man. It's been fun. It's been fun to get to know you. And I, I would envision we'll probably do this again down the road, man. Well, an hour just went by, and I feel like we were talking for 20 minutes. Good, man. Well, I'm glad. That means you had fun. So, Thanks for being my first, Spencer. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Travis. True Captive believes in healthcare that is personal and insurance that isn't complicated. Check them out at truecaptive.com.